I'm excited for all of our new partners here at West Bears Church that commit to follow us in the ministry and the mission that God has called us to do from His Word, the Great Commandment, and the Great Commission. Uh, but one of them specifically I want to highlight at the end, uh, Trey and Taylor Barnhart. We're super excited for them because God has used them um, to really impact our church in some really cool ways, but also in the days ahead. One of the passions that we have as a church is that we'd be able to pour into the next generation of leaders, that we would help take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations, not just in the here and now, but also in the years to come. And so uh, Trey, uh, Trey has come onto our staff uh, as a part-time intern. He's a resident intern, so he'll be with us for the next year or two, being trained up, um, spending time with our pastors regularly, but also some of our church members just to kind of strengthen and equip him for what might be ahead. And we just have a passion to impact our neighborhoods by helping to maybe plant a church down the road or to work to revitalize a church in our area. 85% of the churches are in decline, and so there's a huge need right here in our neighborhood. But God might end up calling them to overseas, which we would love to uh, pray for them and to propel them forward as they follow Christ in that way. And these next couple years, as they walk through this residency here, uh, it's going to be kind of how they walk through that and figure out where God has them. So be, be praying for them, and uh, not just for them, but be praying for our residency program in the years to come. We'll be looking for uh, men that desire to go into ministry and women that are pursuing uh, different forms of ministry as well. And so uh, just be praying for that as it continues to grow and impacts the next generation. But also be encouraged. Uh, church family, because of your faithful generosity and giving, we're able to do things like this to invest in the next generation. And so this is just one of hopefully many to come of us being able to develop uh, men and women to help take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations. So really excited about that and excited about all our partners as a whole. Well, today we're going to continue our series in First Peter, Living Hope. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're actually going to finish off the last part of chapter 3. We'll be in verse 13 through the end of verse 22. So you guys follow along with me as we read God's Word. This is what it says, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim in the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water or the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you grant us minds to comprehend your holy word today? Lord, may we learn from it and live it. You know that we have distracted hearts. 
and slothful minds. And so, Lord, we confess right now that you, we need you to awaken us. Awaken our minds, awaken our hearts, awaken our souls, that, that we would hear and understand the truth that is preached. Lord, would you send your spirit to work among, among us. Help our hearts to, to obey your will and your word. Lord, we beg of you that you would speak to us today through this passage. Now let me give you a second to pray that God would just illuminate your mind to understand his word and to understand it quickly today. Would you pray and ask God for that right now? Lord Jesus, you are our living hope. And we ask that we would grow in that hope today and that it would become evident to those around us this week so that we can proclaim your excellencies. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Well, in Billy Graham's autobiography, he talks about in the 1950s, he was over in London and he was kind of touring and sharing the gospel and uh, he had got so many people come in. They kept packing stadium out after stadium after stadium. He was kind of traveling around in the heart of London. So Winston Churchill, the prime minister at the time, uh, look at this joyful picture. He had a lot of you know, joy in his heart, right? He says he wants to speak to Billy Graham. And he uh, reaches out to, to Graham and says, hey, would you be willing to meet with me? And Billy Graham says, absolutely. So they ask him to come and to meet. And when he, when he goes in, before he goes into this meeting, Winston Churchill, uh, the, the person there in the office says, you have... 20 minutes. No more, no less. That's all you get with Churchill. And then you've got to leave because he's got a meeting with the Duke of Windsor. So Billy Graham walks into the room, and while he walks into the room, Winston Churchill is there standing by himself, kind of thinking. He turns around and he shakes Billy Graham's hand, and the first thing he says to him is, congratulations on all your success. All your success on being able to pack out these stadiums night after night after night. And Billy Graham humbly said, well, it's not me, it's God's doing. Like God is the one that's brought success. And Churchill kind of chuckles to himself. And he says, I don't think if I were speaking and I had Marilyn Monroe right beside me, we could pack out stadiums like you're doing. And then he looks down at his desk and he fans out the newspapers in front of Billy Graham. And he says, look at these newspapers. Look at them. There's war, and there's death, and there's murder, and there's robbery. There's all these things going on. And he highlights, it's Billy Graham. He's like, look at all this. Billy Graham responds, and he says, yeah, these are dark times. Winston Churchill said, how are you packing out these stadiums? How are you getting people to come night after night after night to listen to you? Billy Graham said, well, I really believe that the Word of God used to be preached faithfully here in this city and here in this country. And they long, people long for the Word of God. But a lot has changed since it used to be preached regularly in this city. And Winston Churchill says, yes, a lot has changed. Much has changed. And it's interesting, as they continued to talk over the next several minutes, Billy Graham says in his autobiography, he counted nine times Nine times that Winston Churchill used the word hopeless. I'm hopeless. This world is hopeless. There's all this suffering and all of this pain. And then in a moment of honesty, 
Winston Churchill leans forward, looks at Billy Graham, and he says, I am a man without hope in this world. Do you have any hope for me? Let me ask you something this morning. If you were standing right there, how would you answer him? How would you answer that question? What would you say? What would you offer to someone who says, I need hope. I don't have any hope. Now, we might not stand before a prime minister and be asked that question, but in this passage today, Peter's going to tell us that we as believers should live our hope so loudly that a world would look at us and say, I have no hope. How do I have hope? Where do I find hope? And we need to be able to find the answer. We need to be able to give them the answer. And so in this passage, that's what Peter is doing for us. He's going to actually start this passage where Winston Churchill is. And honestly, where maybe some of us are, or at least the people we're going to interact with in our workplaces and in our family, he's going to start with the reality that we need to expect suffering in this world. Expect suffering in this world. Winston Churchill fans out all those newspapers and says, look at the headlines, look at all this suffering and pain. And Peter, right here, as he pins these words and he writes, he talks about suffering. (laughs) It's not the first time, and it won't be the last time he talks about suffering. This is something very common to the people at this time. It's something that was very common to Peter. And honestly, something very common to us. We should expect suffering in this world. Now, let me just give us a little theodicy with this. Give us a little understanding of of suffering. We're not going to have time to unpack all of this, but... There's kind of three ways that we need to understand suffering comes into our life. And Peter's going to cover two of them briefly in this passage. And then I want to take a step back and look at Scripture as a whole for the third one. For each one of them, I'll give you kind of a a person that lived in the time of the Bible that helps show this view. But first is this, three ways that we might suffer. First, you can suffer for doing right. You can suffer for doing right. Did you catch that in verse 14? But even if you should suffer for what? For righteousness' sake. So this isn't just suffering because we're in a broken world and things are hard. No, you're doing the right thing, and yet you are still suffering. So kind of the illustration for this, the person you should think of in the Bible is Joseph. In the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, this man, Joseph, he he lived a, a good life, trying to seek the Lord and follow after the Lord. Even at one point, choosing to do something that would have been pleasurable for him, But in order to keep his integrity and to honor his boss as well as to honor the Lord, he chose to do what was right and was thrown into prison for it. This is a man that was sold into slavery and didn't give up on life but continued to seek the Lord even though he had been enslaved. And you see as you look at the life of Joseph time and time again, though he did the right thing, there was still suffering that spilled over into his life. It's just the reality of the world that we live in. Now, what's interesting here is that Peter says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, it's a blessing. That is not the default setting for the average human person. And neither was it for Peter. We think if we're suffering, that we're doing something wrong and that, man, we've got to change things because we shouldn't suffer if we're following God. That if we're following God, everything should be easy and it should be a paved road. And this is what Peter used to think. Peter's the right person to write these words. If you know a little bit of Peter's life, if you've read the Gospels, Christ starts talking about suffering. Christ talked a lot about suffering. He lived a lot of of suffering. He was called a man of sorrows. 
And he tells his disciples one time, I am going to go and suffer and to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to go to the cross and bear this excruciating pain and die. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Like, if you do the right thing and you're righteous, like, all this good stuff happens to you, Jesus. No, no, you're talking all wrong. Like, stop saying that stuff. And Jesus comes down hard at Peter at that point. But now, several years since then, Peter has a new perspective. Peter looks at suffering and he's like, wait a second, this might be God's will for my life. Wait a second, I can actually be blessed by being righteous and seeking the Lord even in my suffering. Because Peter had seen the greatest blessing through suffering. That Christ, though he was righteous, died for the unrighteous. That he went to the cross and it was through his excruciating suffering and pain in righteousness that salvation has come to us, to anyone who would believe, anyone who would receive this. And so Peter writes these words, yes, you might suffer for righteousness sake, but count it even as blessing. Now, we'll get to this later on in chapter 4, but this is just a brief preview. Because suffering for righteousness sake... Many times we think, well, as I do good things, then I'll get persecuted for them. And you, and you very well might. You might be doing good things and people slander you or defame you. But I feel like more in our culture, most likely what's going to happen is you're going to abstain from something. And it's going to be the abstaining for something for righteousness sake that is going to get you mocked, uh, mocked and made fun of and slandered, maligned. And that's what Peter's going to talk about actually in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He's going to tell us this, that you will, you will be slandered for doing not necessarily something good. People might actually praise you for doing good things, but they'll actually slander you for not doing what they're doing. He says this in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's the, the, the sinful things, the wrong things. Gentiles are the unbelievers. And he says, living in sensuality passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And it says, respect to this, they are surprised. They're surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery. And what does it say? So they malign you. What he is hinting at here, what he's showing us is that sometimes when we don't do the things that the world does, that's when we'll suffer for righteousness sake. That's when we'll have insults hur hurled at us and be mocked for where we stand. It is often not what the Christian does, but what the Christian refuses to do that brings suffering into their life. And so yes, do the right things, absolutely, but also sustain, abstain from things. That you don't need to. And when those times come where you're maligned, then count it as blessing. Because you are honoring the Lord with your life. You are seeking Him first and foremost. And this is a form of suffering that we will experience. Suffering for doing what's right. But you can't avoid suffering. It is everywhere. You're going to suffer no matter what you do. You can also suffer for doing evil. You see this in verse 17. He gives them this warning. It's better to suffer for doing what's good, if it should be the Lord's will, than for doing evil. So if you kind of work this out, what he's saying is you can actually suffer for doing evil. You can suffer for doing the wrong thing. And the person I want you to think about from the, from the Bible with this is Jonah. Jonah suffered 
Not because he was doing the right thing, but because he was doing the wrong thing. Jonah had all out of pain in his life because he, he knew the word of God. He knew what God had told him to do, and he's like, nope, I'm running the other direction. Nope, I'm not doing that. God, I know that you're a merciful God. I know you want to save these people. I don't like these people. I don't want to do anything with these people. He was a racist towards those people. And God brought suffering into his life, honestly, to, to lead him and to guide him to repentance. So there's, for us, some of us, there is suffering in our lives because you know what God has called you to do. You know it. And you're rebelling against him. You're bumping your head against the brick wall. And God's like, no, you're not supposed to live like that. You're supposed to forgive. You're not supposed to treasure lust and these things over me. You're not supposed to love your money and try to love me at the same time. You can't do both. God's word has said over and over again, this is how we should live. And so we just need to be honest. Some of the suffering in our life is self-inflicted. Where we live in such a way where we are doing what is evil and there's suffering in our life. I want to just warn you. Some of the suffering that God brings in your life could be for your good to bring you to repentance instead of to cast you into hell in your sin. Would you notice those sins? Because this, this is an area of suffering that you could experience. Now, the, the third way that you can suffer that's not in this passage, but is certainly throughout the scriptures. And sometimes you can suffer for no perceivable reason. Sometimes you can suffer for no perceivable reason. Think of Job. You go and read the book of Job, it actually says that Job was a blameless man. Was he living the right life? Was he living for the Lord? Was he seeking after him? Absolutely he was. The scripture says he is. And yet there's suffering that comes into his life. He didn't understand it. He couldn't conceive what was going on. He couldn't perceive why this was happening. And yet there was just suffering that was happening in his life. We're in a broken world. We're in a fallen world. There's a real spiritual battle that's going on in our world right now. And suffering is the kind of fallout from some of these things. So you're going to see that suffering is just, it's just reality. And we as believers need to have a deeper, richer understanding of suffering than our world does. We need to understand that there is a God who is strong and mighty and sovereign and above all these things. We need to take passages of Scripture and hide them in our hearts that we would interact with suffering well. Passages like John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus speaking said, I've said these things to you. That you may have peace in me. Jesus is speaking that we would have peace. Now what's the context? In this world you will have tribulation or pain or suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus gives a twofold promise here. We claim the second one, we never even think about the first one. He's promised that in this world we will have tribulation. We will have suffering. Expect it. He's promised it. It's a broken, fallen world. And for a number of reasons, we're going to experience suffering. But then he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That Christ is more powerful. That he is working all these things to an end. That one day he will snuff out all the suffering and injustices. He will fix all the wrongs and make them right. Oh, let me, let me just speak to the parents in the room for a moment. Even to my own heart as a, as a dad. We need to help our kids in this next generation understand that suffering is a real thing and how to deal with it from a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective. 
So when they get older and they're denied a job, they don't lose all hope in their life. When they get taken advantage of, they have something to cling to. God forbid, but if their marriage ever fall apart, they know they can cling to the Lord in the midst of it. And even when death comes in their life or for them, they could have a living hope. We need to be teaching this to the next generation whose statistics say across the board is the most hopeless generation out there. They might not be speaking these words, where do you find hope, but they're watching your life. They're looking at how you live and how you speak about the world and what you live in. And they're looking at us as believers here today, and they're saying, man, they don't have any more hope than we do. There's something off with that. And I think we have to hold on one hand suffering and realize the reality of that in our world, but at the same time, we cannot lose the hope we have in Jesus Christ. A hope that actually outweighs the suffering. It's a hope that goes through life and death. It's an everlasting, eternal hope. And that's where Peter's going to take us next. That we would have this hope and display this hope to a hurting world. We display this hope to a hurting world. How are people going to see hope in you? How are people going to see hope in me? Hope is invisible. You can't touch hope. You can't grab a hold of hope, right? And yet Peter's going to say, people will see hope in you as you follow Christ, and it's going to cause them to wonder and to ask questions and wonder how you're reasoning through this, how you're logically thinking about it, and have hope. That's what he says. So how do we display this invisible thing? There's two ways he's going to tell us in this passage. One is we redirect our fears. We redirect our fears. This is how we're going to display our hope. If you look at the end of verse 14, going into verse 15, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have no fear of them. I mean, he's just said at the beginning of verse 13, Is there anybody out there that can harm you? And if you're reading this, at this time you're like, Yeah. This guy, Nero, he's taking Christians, he's dunking them in oil and using them as candles in his house. That seems like harm. Like, yes, there's people going to harm us. And he looks at them, he says, don't fear them, fear the Lord. Don't fear the one that can harm the body but can't destroy the soul. Instead, fear the one who has control over both. And so he's redirecting our fears. And once again, God in his sovereignty chooses Peter to pin these words through the Holy Spirit, and there's no better per- person to pin it. You know Peter's story? Peter feared the them. He feared them. He followed Christ for three years, and he denied them three times within hours. And the third time he denies them is to a little girl that's like, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Like one of these guys that followed Jesus? He's like, no, 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 no. And he curses and speaks blasphemies and says, I have never known him. He feared the people's opinion more than he feared and honored the Lord. And now God in his gracious work has sanctified the life of Peter. And now Peter's like, listen to me, guys. Do not fear them. Do not fear what the people will say about you, how they'll slander you or or kind of excommunicate you and push you out. Don't fear them. Instead, direct your fear to the Lord. Honor him in your heart as the Lord, as holy. 
Now, the end of 14 going into 15, we'll actually get to dive into pretty deep, but he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And I think there's a reason why. There's a context for the time for Peter and honestly for, for our time. But the people in Isaiah's time are extremely fearful. God had given them promises that he was going to bless them, and yet there was a, a rough, rough patch because of the sin in their life. And so there's literally a, a, an army, a nation that's coming to them to, to conquer them. People are kind of looking out over the wall, and they are fearing what could be. They're fearing that they're going to be just murdered and removed off the face of the earth. And they're all anxious, and they're talking about it and throwing it in news headlines at this time. And they're talking about these different conspiracies and what could happen. And God looks at Isaiah, and then he says, you do not fear what they fear. You fear the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the God Almighty. You fear him. And so what Peter does is he takes that passage from Isaiah 8, and then he puts it right here in this passage, and he says, he exchanged Lord of hosts, and he puts in Christ the Lord. And he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't look at everything that they say should be the end of all things. No, you look to the Lord who is the eternal almighty God. You fear and honor him. Honor Christ as the Lord which means he's sovereign, which means he's mighty, which means he's above all things. You honor him as holy. All of this is a redirecting of fear, placing it on the Lord and honoring him within our hearts. If you go back and you look, Isaiah 8, you'll see that those who fear the Lord, then he becomes a sanctuary to them. He becomes a place of peace and refuge. All that we would fear him and honor him with our lives. This is how we're going to display the hope to a lost world. When we don't fear everything that they fear. And we're not anxious about everything that they're anxious about. When they look at us and like, why are you not worried about this part of your job? Why are you not anxious about the election coming up? Why do you seem to have a peace with your family? Why are you having a peace in this health issue? How in the world are you having hope through all of this? And that's an open door for us to walk through to proclaim the living hope of Jesus Christ. And don't miss those opportunities. I feel like we miss so many of them because we're not even looking for them. People are asking us little questions that are open doors for us to be able to talk about the living hope in Christ. Oh, pray that God would open up our eyes that we would see those opportunities and that we would be bold to take them. Not fearing man, but honoring Jesus Christ. And this is how we're going to display hope to a lost world. Second, this way we display hope is we have a reason for our hope. Be ready to give a reason for your hope. I love that he says this. Because all of us can do this. This is actually... Be ready to give a defense is where we get the word apologetics in our language for, which I'm very thankful. I've been to apologetics conferences. I've sat down with brilliant men over meals and talked about apologetics. It's fantastic to be able to defend your faith. But Peter here is not saying, once you take these classes and you have the intellect in order to be able to talk about the hope of Jesus Christ, then once you've checked all these boxes, then you can tell people about the hope that you have. No. He says, be ready. All of you. Whenever the door is open to talk about the hope that is in you, and you don't have to have all these logical reasons, why do you have this feeling of hope in your soul? 
Why does it change the way that you live? Talk about that. That's not a difficult thing to do. This is something that all of us could do, and it's calling us to do this. Let me ask you this, just to be sober, sober and honest with us. When is the last time someone has asked you the reason for your hope? Has anybody ever asked you about the reason for the hope that you have in your life? Church, are we hoping loud enough? Are we hoping in such a way that the world can hear us? Do they look at our life and say, no, there's something different there. I need hope. In a hopeless world, I need that. And some people have taken this passage and they've read it and they're like, well, look right here. I can just preach the gospel and if necessary, I'll use words. No, preach is pretty clear. You need both. You're going to need to use words and you're going to need to have a lifestyle that matches it, Right? you got a hope that's out there and you're living a hopeful life. And as people talk to you, you share with your words the good news of Jesus. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. He says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. We have to speak it. We have to be bold to fear the Lord more than we fear man. And to pray for opportunities. God, would you open those doors? This is terrifying. I want to share the hope but I'm terrified to share it. God, help me do that. And God in his goodness and his faithfulness will help you do it. Now, church, as we do it, Peter puts a qualifier on it. Qualifier that still is for us as a church today. Look at the end of verse 15. Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. It does not matter how good your answer is or even how compelling your life is, if you answer without gentleness and respect, you forfeit your witness. Screaming at someone in Jesus' name does not change them. No one has ever gotten converted by people screaming and saying cutting things to each other on Facebook. That's just just not reality. Peter says do it with gentleness and respect. There's a great apologist, Francis Schaeffer, who would sit down and do debates with people, and he would always say, in gentleness and in respect, in truth with love. And he said, I would rather lose an argument but do it in a loving fashion than to win it, win it doing it in a very degrading, cutting down fashion. He's pointing back to this passage. Oh God, help us to do it with gentleness and respect. May we share the living hope of Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect. And then that's what Peter moves back to. He points back in verse 18 to Jesus. All that we would remember Christ's suffering as we endure our own. Remember Christ's suffering as we endure our own. If you haven't caught this yet, then you haven't been following too closely with 1 Peter. Because Peter keeps doing this over and over again. He keeps pointing back to Christ everything. In the hypographo, we talked about several weeks ago, the tracing of the life of Christ. And Peter doesn't just say, well, look to Jesus for your forgiveness of sins, although he does say that. He also says, hey, when you look at your marriage, look at how Christ loved his church. When you look at your work, look at how you submit to your boss. Would you look at Christ and how he submitted to God the Father? I think one of the biggest gaps that we have as Christians today is that we look at Christ's death and his resurrection and we think, well, that's it. 
I'm thankful that we have forgiveness, and that is a great thing. We never look at his life. We never once look at the pain or the suffering that we're going through in our life and say, how did Christ walk through this? We talked about it last week. He can sympathize with us because he's walked in our shoes. He's been there. And so Peter, again, is like, hey, you're going to suffer? Yeah, all of us are going to suffer. Now, suffer is someone who has hope. And when people ask you about your hope, you can share it. And I don't know about you, but you hear that, and you got to be like, how? How do I do that? Like, how do I suffer and have hope hand in hand? And Peter's like, Jesus. Look back at Jesus. He did it. He suffered the most excruciating death as he died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world. Nobody's had more pain and suffering in their life than Jesus. Look at his death. Look at it. Now, as he looks at Christ, the beginning of this section and the end of this section have kind of pillars that we're semi-familiar with, that we feel comfortable talking about. It's kind of everything in between that's like, what? What's happening? What is he talking about? Noah and spirits in prison and what is all this? Well, let's start with those firm pillars. Peter starts talking about the death of Christ. And then he's going to end talking about the resurrection of Christ. Those are two firm pillars. Those are two bookends that we grasp and we understand. And it frames everything else within. Look at verse 18 as it talks about the death of Christ. It tells us why he died. He died once for sins. Now, Christ had no sins. He was the sinless lamb of God to take our place. So why did he die? For our sins. And then he clarifies the righteous, that's Jesus, pure and spotless lamb, for the unrighteous, us, rebellious, hard-hearted, running away from God, disobedient to his word. He dies in our place on that cross. Why would he do that? And Peter's going to tell us that he might bring us to God. The fountain of life, abundant and eternal life, the fountain of all pleasures are founded in him. And so he does this. He dies for us that he might bring us in right relationship with God. That we could come forward, that we could have this living hope. This living hope. And then he ends and talks about the other thing we're familiar with, the resurrection of Jesus. That he didn't just die for our sins, but he removed him as far as east is from the west as he rose from the grave. And then it talks about his ascension as he goes up to heaven. Where he's there at the right hand of God the Father, verse 22 tells us. Where angels are serving him and all authorities and powers have been placed underneath his feet and are subjected to him. Now those two are firm realities. We get those, we understand those. And now, now everything in between is a little bit tougher to understand. We need to look through this lens of Christ, his death and his resurrection. Now, as I'm studying this this week, one commentator even said that there are 180 different views on these few verses. So we're going to spend the rest of our time with 180 views. We're going to just walk through that now. I'm totally joking. Some of y'all thought I was serious. Some of y'all probably want to hear all 180 views. Um, but I'll just boil it down to two, okay? Two main views that this, this proclaiming to the spirits during Noah's day, what all that is about. So if I could boil it down just to, to kind of two main points. One is this. Some believe that... This is proclaiming that after Christ's death, he went and proclaimed his victory to a group of kind of disobedient demons or spirits or powers that were kind of thrown in prison. 
And Christ goes down there to proclaim everything that he said he was going to do, he was going to do. And it's a preview of the judgment to come on them. So that's what some people believe. And let's just say this, of the 180 views, uh, we can agree to disagree on this, no matter where you fall. This is kind of a tertiary issue of theology. There's not a lot of verses that talk about either side of this. But that's one view. And we could unpack that more if we had time, but that's what some people believe. That's, that, that's what Christ went and did. The other option that people talk about is Peter is saying that through the Spirit of Christ, he was preaching to the disobedient spirits in Noah's day. That Noah lived in a disobedient generation. Go read Genesis chapter 9, you'll see about what, what all that was. And Jesus Christ, his spirit, is speaking through Noah as he's preaching to those people. And you think, how in the world is that possible? What are you talking about? Well, Paul references it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, speaking to the people in Ephesus, Christ came, or he came, and preached peace to you. Now, we know that Jesus never once set foot in Ephesus. He never once preached to the church in Ephesus. What Paul is saying is that as faithful ministers of the gospel came and preached the gospel, the Spirit of Christ was preaching through them. And it's the same for us today. As we proclaim the good news of the gospel, that is the Spirit of Christ preaching through us. So if they reject us, they're not ultimately rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ. Now, the question that comes, even if you fall on one of these two views or one of the 178 other views, is why in the world would he bring up Noah in this passage? And why would he talk about that here? And I think it's very intentional. You see, the people in Noah's day are completely rebellious against God. Their hearts are hard. They're apathetic to the word of God or anything that God has to say. And Noah is continuing to preach to them over and over and over again. And he's met with hostility to which the passage says only eight people actually believe in this message of mercy. Noah's been preaching, judgment's coming. There's a flood coming. You, there's still plenty of room on this ark. Let's, let's get on here and we can avoid the flood. And this is something we kind of read over, but it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. 120 years. So while he's there and he's building this ark, he's preaching the gospel, and people continue to harden their hearts and say, nope, I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. I don't want anything to do with this God. I want to live my life my own way. And Peter is referencing it right here, right now, because these people are being persecuted as they proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving nation and an unbelieving world. And he's saying, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Continue to proclaim through this power of Christ, through the spirit of Christ, the good news of Christ. And maybe only eight people get saved. But you need to be faithful to share the good news. I doubt any of us live to 120 years of faithfully preaching the gospel and being rejected over and over and over again like Noah did. But he's an example where we look and model this and reflect this. And I love how it talks about in verse 20. When God's patience waited. God was patient, waiting for them to believe. 120 years. Oh, God is using us now to continue to proclaim the gospel because he's a patient God, wanting people to believe in the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you live with that hope? You see, this, I believe the reason why he ends with the resurrection here is, one, he's pointing back to baptism. Baptism is a symbol of the resurrection. But two, this reminds us of the living hope that we have. That not even death itself can rob us of this hope. 
all that we would look at the resurrection of Christ and be like, God can do anything. Because there's people we're going to look at in our life and be like, ain't no way God's ever saving that person. There's no way that God's ever going to do this amazing work. But when we look at the resurrection, we got to say, God can do anything. With God, all things are possible. Dead come to life? Yes, the spiritually dead can come to life. All that we would look to Christ, his life and his resurrection, and then it would give us hope to endure well for the gospel, even in the midst of our suffering. And as we hope in suffering, it will lead people to do exactly what Winston Churchill did. When he looks at Billy Graham, he looks at those newspapers, he says, I have no hope. Do you have hope? And Billy Graham says, yes, I do. I have a living hope in the good news of Jesus. And then he referenced something similar to verse 18, that Christ came into our suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the hope that Billy Graham would offer to him. And as he is sharing this living hope with Winston Churchill, there's a knock that comes on the door. And the assistant says, hey, it's time for your next meeting. Time's up. 20 minutes is over. you got to go meet with the Duke of Windsor. And Winston Churchill looked back at them and said, tell him he can wait. Tell him he can wait. Billy, share more about this living hope that I could have in Jesus Christ. Do you know that living hope? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you that you first loved us and that you sent Christ for us, the the righteous for the unrighteous. God, I thank you for those in this room right now that have trusted in you, and I pray you just renew that hope, renew their understanding of your goodness and your grace, renew in their heart a celebration and a worship of you. And for those in this room, or maybe watching online, who are considering trusting Christ, Lord, would you incline their hearts right now to reach out to you in faith, to admit their desperate need for you and the hope that you bring, to believe in you and to to confess two things, to confess that they are sinners who has missed the mark of where you desire for them to be, but also confess that you are the Lord who is a redeemer, who can save them. Your arm is not too short to save. God, we thank you for that. We're so thankful. And God, as we follow you, I pray that you would help us this week to live distinguished lives in such a way that people would see Christ in us and we could proclaim the living hope that we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand now and let's sing to Jesus.